Welcome to The View from Apollo, a podcast where we discuss current macroeconomic trends and break down how they'll impact our investors. I'm your host, Torsten Slock. I'm Chief Economist here at Apollo Global Management. Each episode, I'll be joined by leaders from across our business who will share their unique perspective on the market factors that are shaping sectors and investment strategies. You can catch new episodes by subscribing to The View from Apollo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or by visiting our homepage, apollo.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Torsten Slug, and you're listening to The View from Apollo's podcast. In this episode, we'll talk to Philip Mintz, one of the co-leaders of Apollo's real estate investment division in the United States. Philip is a seasoned investment professional and a true expert in real estate investments, and I'm excited to have him on the show today. We have quite a lot to talk about, and I'm expecting a broad-ranging conversation from the state of the market today, as the Federal Reserve and other key global central banks continue to tighten monetary conditions, to public and private real estate valuations after massive dislocations in capital markets, to his views on distressed investing, and much more. So without any further ado, let me get right to it. Hi, Philip. Thanks for being here with us today. Before we get started, please tell us a bit about who you are and what you do here at Apollo. Thanks, Torsen, and I appreciate my second chance to be on your podcast. Um, a thrilled guest. Uh, I help oversee the real estate equity investing business at Apollo. Uh, I'm based in New York and Greenwich, Connecticut, and we invest uh, both in terms of core, core plus, and value-add and opportunistic across the spectrum of assets in the United States. Well, thanks, Philip, and welcome back to the show. Well, first, let me just set the scene for our conversation today. As you know, inflation is very high. The Fed is forecasting that inflation will continue to be high for the next three years. It will gradually come down to the Fed's 2% target, but the forecast is that it's going to take several years before we get back to the inflation target of 2% that the FOMC has set. And with that backdrop, of course, there's also a very important debate about how are we going to get back to 2% inflation? And does it require a lot higher level of the Fed funds rate? Does it require a lot tighter financial conditions? And the increase in the Fed funds rate, and in particular, the higher level of interest rates over the last uh, 9, 10 months, has of course created a lot of dislocations in capital markets. At the moment, high yield markets, public markets are shut down. IPO markets are essentially also shut down. Capital markets have not been functioning the way they normally do in an environment we had before inflation started going up. So the broader backdrop is that inflation is high and the Fed has been raising rates. As I mentioned, there is, of course, a very important debate about how long time is it going to take, but it's very clear that where we're standing today, we do still have a very serious inflation problem and we still have a situation where the Fed is likely to raise interest rates at least a few more times as we look ahead here into 2023. So with that backdrop and turning to our conversation, Philip, what is the state of the real estate market today? Well, there, there was a, I think there was a compound question. So I'm going to take that in a few different directions. I think what I would say is in high inflationary environments, real estate tends to do well, whether it's a low growth backdrop or a high growth backdrop. So all things equal, real estate should be poised to perform well, to be a very good inflation hedge. But against that backdrop, and you mentioned a few things, particularly the tightening 
of the capital markets and the credit markets for real estate more particularly. And what you find now, which is kind of fascinating, in the last 10 months, just about every single asset 10 months ago in the United States has a positive financing spread, meaning that the capitalization rate that you could buy an asset or your initial yield on cost was greater than the cost to finance such asset across just about all asset classes in the States. 10 months later, here we sit in November, and it's essentially inverted. In a few asset classes, it's basically a wash, meaning the cap rate and the financing rate are the equivalent. In some asset classes, it's inverted, meaning the cap rates are below uh, the, the cost to borrow. In particular, asset classes like industrial and multifamily, which were two asset classes that were heavily, heavily favored over the last three years by institutional investors. So really, what does that do? I think it does a few things. One, it leads to some price correction. It leads to some slowdown in transaction flow. We're seeing that now. And it also leads to a bifurcation of values. And by bifurcation of values, what I mean is the public market REITs uh, have corrected anywhere from 25 to 35% on average, while the private real estate markets are generally fairly flat, at least as reported by the private REITs uh, that publish net asset values on a monthly basis, which is a, a kind of confounding situation. I think our house view is that the reality is somewhere in the middle uh, and that the public REIT should perform fairly well over the next six to nine months and private real estate uh, will likely continue to be under some significant pressure uh, over the next six months to a year. And just following up on that, I mean, in your conversations with people in the business, are they saying that inflation is a more permanent problem or do they agree with this view that the Fed is absolutely committed to getting inflation to come down? In other words, how permanent is the current situation? Is this a situation that people generally think will last years or, or even longer? Or is this something that people generally look at and say, okay, this is probably going to go away relatively quickly? I don't think anyone would say it's going to go away relatively quickly. But that said, you're starting to see deceleration in home prices, which is a significant component of CPI. Uh, so I think people do believe that the Fed will get things under control. I think the more near-term challenge is that you have enormous amounts of maturities of debt, uh, all of which are going to be fairly difficult to refinance in a few regards. One is debt service coverage ratios, uh, LTV levels, uh, and that's going to create a lot of headwinds against pricing. Uh, but I think, Torsten, to your question, I think most people believe that over the next year and a half to two years, things will normalize, albeit possibly at higher base rates, uh, but not at the rates that are at today, uh, and certainly not growing from here uh, upwards. Yeah, and, and exactly as you're highlighting in the CPI basket, meaning in the inflation data, housing makes up roughly 40% of the basket. Uh, and why is that? That's because the biggest component for consumers of their spending every month is either their mortgage or their rent. So that's why it has a very significant weight in the outlook for inflation. And exactly as you're highlighting, rents are rolling over, home prices are beginning to come down gradually also. And that's all providing quite a significant downward pull in inflation. There are some technical reasons why it may take a few more months before we begin to see that in the data. But broadly speaking, the Fed should begin to see inflation grind lower and therefore ultimately also begin to see a more normal situation in capital markets. Uh, but let, let me follow up on what you just mentioned and get your take on the current dichotomy between public and private real estate markets. What's your view on what's going on in public and private markets uh, at the moment? Well, you know, I think if you look at private market, high-level equity investing, 
for the most part, people are long only investors. That's what they do. They have an amount of capital, whether it's a REIT, uh, whether it's a institutional firm or 1031 exchange, you know, individual investors, and typically not really hedging the way you might in a sort of a long short uh, equity fund, so to speak. And as such, there's always people that are buying. Now, that said, it's constrained somewhat by the financing environment that we're in. And that's really in the short term what's putting enormous pressure on pricing. And I think we'll continue to put pressure on pricing. Public markets react much quicker. In a sense, because of the liquidity in the trading, they're being marked to market instantaneously uh, and fairly efficiently. Although what I would argue is the credit markets have priced and reacted the most efficiently. And so I think the dichotomy between public markets and private markets is real. I think the public market over the next 12 months will outperform the private markets for sure. But I think an interesting investment opportunity right now, so long as you're not wedded uh, to real estate equity in the short term, is frankly credit opportunities uh, that are availing themselves right now where you can generate unleveraged yields that are pretty substantial in the high single digits at 60, 65% loan to value, which you know, over the last five years was impossible to provide uh, in the United States. And it's pretty compelling risk return right now. So let's talk a bit more a bit about that. I mean, I know that your team invests both in real estate equity and real estate debt. And, and I'm just wondering, given what you just said, I mean, as rates rise and capital becomes scarcer, is this a better time for a lender or an equity investor in the real estate market? You know, I think that as long as you look at these things agnostically right now in the short term, I would say you know, my partner, Scott Weiner, uh, has a very large credit book in the United States. It's a very interesting time to be putting out three-year floating rate debt uh, with soap for floors, again, because you're essentially lending into a constrained valuation market, getting very similar debt service coverage ratios as you were before, but with meaningfully higher spreads across all the asset classes in the U.S., and so historically, if a lender was looking for yield, they were kind of racing to the riskiest asset classes, i.e. retail and hospitality. Now, ironically, we're seeing really good spreads in asset classes like industrial, multifamily. And, and that's a pretty unique opportunity, particularly given the last 10-year cycle. I don't think it'll last terribly long, uh, but certainly in the short term, it's pretty hard to find a, an argument against that risk return. Yeah, so let's talk a bit also about that. I mean, in terms of where the opportunities are, I mean, to, to contextualize it a little bit for our audience, real estate fundraising has exceeded 100 billion each year since 2014 through 2021. And since 2007, over 75% of the funds raised were invested in opportunistic and value added strategies, and the rest was divided among core, core plus, and distressed. I mean, when you look at it today at the real estate market through those lenses, where do you see opportunity here sitting before 2023, given the dislocations that we have experienced this year? I think that you have to look in the United States at socioeconomic and demographic trends. Uh, I don't want to make this about politics because obviously as a risk return investor, it's apolitical. But I say that because the Sun Belt is particularly interesting to us in, in many respects. Uh, you have higher growth in employment, higher wage growth. Uh, across just about all asset classes, it's a, it's a tailwind. And then on top of that, what we try to look for, and I think any real estate investor should look for, is asset classes that are either counter-cyclical or, or otherwise have supply-demand drivers that are not 
so obvious that are somewhat more opaque. Asset classes like refrigerated warehouse or manufactured housing, which over the last five years have seen declines in supply uh, as opposed to increase in supply. I think the other overriding thing that will be interesting is because of the increase in replacement costs, the increase in labor and other materials costs, we would suspect that supply uh, coming in 2025 should be fairly muted, which will be an unintended beneficiary of the environment that we're in today. So that said, a lot of asset classes look generally good. Fundamentals are fairly strong. That said, I think there still is some price correction to come, as we discussed before, Torson, given some of the financing challenges and some of the illiquidity in the market more generally, which gives you that window now. If you can really asset select and geographically select uh, and buy durable assets for the long term, it's a pretty interesting environment to be investing. Very interesting. And of course, one asset type and one uh, specific property type that you and I have also talked about before is hotels. And I know you have some very particular views here and you just alluded a little bit to this, but what's happening with hotels today? Maybe share your thoughts with our audience, because from my chair, if you look at occupancy rates are still quite elevated, rep is high, daily rates are high, and you're still looking at a fairly strong tailwind from consumers to the hotel industry. So how do you look with your real estate glasses on at hotels at the moment? It was interesting. When, when COVID began, you had an interesting situation where real estate fundamentals for hotels went uh, from the zenith to the nadir almost instantaneously. Uh, and so you had significant cash flow problems. As you are now exiting COVID, you almost have the inverse, uh, particularly leisure and drive to hotels are performing extraordinarily well. Even in gateway markets like New York, hotels are performing incredibly well, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the last two and a half odd years. That said, from a capital structure perspective, amongst all the asset classes, hotels have some of the largest, for example, CMBS maturities coming up many of which will be very, very, very difficult uh, to refinance. So you have this perplexing problem where we think that there's going to be a capital structure issue without the corresponding operational issues. So it should be a very interesting time to provide capital, uh, whether it's gap financing or other forms of structured equity or structured credit uh, to hotel operators uh, in need of that funding with these maturities coming due. It's, it's over $60 billion of maturities in the next three years alone. I think much of which will be fairly challenging to refinance efficiently. And what about other types of properties? What's your take on traditional core types such as retail, industrial, office, and residential? It's interesting idiosyncrasies. So for example, right now, the public REITs in general that have the most interesting opportunities are the multifamily REITs, where cap rates have gapped out to sort of six, six and a quarter, six and a half percent. You know, underlying assets in the physical markets were trading sub 4%. Uh, in the last six months. That's an enormous movement. I would also argue in, in asset classes like manufactured housing uh, as well. I think that we're more sanguine on office. You know, I've traveled around the country quite a bit in the last month, and almost regardless of what city you go into, it appears to me as if physical occupancy is really quite low still. And I, I think the jury is still out in terms of utilization of office across the country. Uh, you know, there's obviously rumors about our own office building here at 9 West 57th for sale at extraordinary valuations. You know, we scratch our heads. It's, it's really hard to see how that can economically work at north of $2,000, a square foot uh, for an office building in this environment. So as I come back in conclusion, 
I think multifamily in the public markets looks very, very interesting. I think that hospitality investing, particularly gap financing, looks very, very interesting. And then staying tried and true to things like life sciences, manufactured housing also looks interesting. On retail, the thing that we find most interesting is essential retail and grocery anchor retail. That is also gapped out a fair amount. And we think that that of all the classes of retail is still the most internet resistant, will remain the most internet resistant. And so there's opportunities that are starting to form there as well that we see. Just finally on that topic, I mean, what about warehouses? During the pandemic, obviously, when we were all sitting at home and ordering stuff online, warehouse construction and including cold storage warehouses just really expanded very, very rapidly. Where does that stand at the moment? Industrial rents in many markets have been growing double digit. Uh, They continue to grow. There's obviously large supply uh, coming online this year and next, which will likely abate some of that rent growth. But net-net, it's still a very healthy asset class. It's still a very investable asset class. I think there is an asset class where financing rates have gapped out a lot. You'll likely see short-term price pressure uh, on a price per foot or a price per pound. Uh, but I think long-term, you know, systematically, it's still a very important asset class. And I think that you'll also look for adjacencies to the asset class, like outdoor industrial storage or food-related warehouse, freezer, cooler. These are asset classes that are a little less institutionalized, a little more decentralized, where you pick up some extra basis points on a risk-return basis and have some pretty compelling fundamentals in their own right. So yeah, I think up and down those adjacencies is still a very interesting asset class for long-term holders. And as we talked about earlier, I mean, interest rates are still going up and the Fed is still raising rates, trying to get inflation under control. And you can't have a conversation about real estate without talking about cap rates. In your view at the moment, where is the puck going when it comes to cap rates? I think it depends on the asset class. I think, as I said at the beginning, some of these asset classes are inverted now compared to the financing yields. I would see those cap rates under more pressure. Uh, The two that come most to mind are multifamily and industrial. I think the cap rates that are least under pressure would be the inverse of that, retail uh, and hospitality. They've been elevated for a very long time. They weren't really priced uh, to perfection. The cap rates where I think that there's, ironically, the least amount of pressure, despite the fact that financing rates have moved, are asset classes where there still is enormous NOI growth uh, that's somewhat unconstrained in the short term. Asset classes like freezer cooler, manufactured housing, possess some of those characteristics. You know, manufactured housing, the public REITs and private owners are still growing rents 6, 7, 8% a year with double-digit NOI increases. You know, I think people there can still look and underwrite a transaction and buy that growth. In asset classes like standard non-essential retail or office, it's much more difficult to sit with a credible underwriting and look to try to capture that kind of releasing spread or rent growth Uh, The other asset class that I would say uh, is under some pressure where you'll see some cap rate movements more strongly is long-term net leased assets where you might have one and a half, two percent escalators. So you're not really picking up any of that inflation hedge for 10, 12, 15 years. And those assets are under more pressure than similarly styled assets that only have two, three or four years of term where you can more quickly recapture that leasing spread. Okay, so in summary, would you agree that this is a market today that's best suited for real estate investors seeking income generation? Yeah, I, I think I would. I, I, you know, again, I would say that it's best suited for someone that doesn't mind taking credit risk and living with sort of three-year floating rate exposure. 
that has that inflation protection built into it and has a lot of subordination to protect the return. On the other hand, I also think it's interesting for certain asset classes where you might get a significant discount to what you would have paid for that asset six months ago, a year ago, or two years ago, where you have high conviction in the geographic, you know, quote, sub-market and the underlying cash flows. But what I would say is it's a much more asset-selective market than it was two, three, four, five years ago. You know, I think that uh, the cows are going to come home to roost for certain investors that got a little bit too scale-oriented, too growth-oriented, uh, and it would be much more of a what I'd call a targeted, very selective investment environment going forward, certainly throughout 2023. Okay, so before we wrap up, uh, I know we've talked a lot about the opportunities in the U.S. today, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your thoughts on the outlook for residential real estate and household formation in light of spiking mortgage rates. Can you talk to me about that issue? Yeah, I, look, I think you look out to two years ago and you, you called a mortgage broker and you tried to get a floating rate mortgage and they would quote you 2.2%, 2.3%, 2.4% in that ballpark. You make that same phone call today and you're quoted five-ish percent. I mean, at the end of the day, that is going to have an impact, not just on the economics, but I think as importantly, the psychology. And I think that that type of price Discovery takes a while. You know, right now, sellers are not apt to sell and, and buyers are really not apt to necessarily buy. So you have this very strange inchoate period uh, that's going to take a little bit of time. I think the other thing that plays into it is the psychology of the stock market. You know, the stock market was extraordinarily volatile and, and now it's having sort of a summer, if you will. You know, the markets are pretty strong. A lot of the stocks have, have come back and are even surviving a lot of the cryptocurrency collapse that you're seeing across that infrastructure, you know, trillions of dollars getting lost, but yet the stock market is still performing fairly well. Bitcoin is holding up at around 15,000 odd. And I think all of those are kind of conspiring to stop the price discovery in real estate. My suspicion is into the first quarter and second quarter of next year, you'll start to see some capitulation on the part of sellers and prices will normalize. You know, asking prices in my mind are still very elevated. You know, I'm hearing anecdotally Brokers asking bidders, you know, just bid 20% below the ask, bid 15% below. And my suspicion is that's probably the more appropriate clearing price than what is being shown on sites like Zillow, et cetera. So I think there will be a shakeout. But I think to your point before, you know, the Fed will get inflation under control quicker because that will have its circular effect on CPI and on inflation readings. And I think that ultimately this will normalize in a year and a half to two years. And generally speaking, the market is pretty strong. You know, real estate fundamentals are pretty strong. So I don't think that there'll be a calamitous reaction, but I do think that there'll be some opportunities in the short term for people to capitalize in the residential markets. All right. We could stay here and talk much longer, but uh, Philip, I know how busy you are and your time is so greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for being here with us today and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Torsen. Apollo Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. 
there can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast, including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature due to various risks and uncertainties Actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof, or other variations thereon, or comparable terminology.